You're listening to SkippyCast. I'm David McPhee. SkippyCast is a podcast about hobo-like travel. Those people whose wanderlust leads them to abandon all for parts unknown. At least that's the theory. In this program, I chat with Nan Mandez. Nan Mandez, or Nan Babiak as she was known back then, was the production manager for the PBS show Trailside. Now, what does Trailside have to do with Wonderlust, you ask? Well, everything and nothing. I know it's only the second interview, so it's a little early to start off in new directions, but to quote Wikipedia, Trailside Make Your Own Adventure was a six-time Emmy-nominated series that brought the outdoors to millions of viewers each week. The series premiered in 1993, and at its peak, it was available to over 80 million households via public television. Now, I can't attest to those figures, but I do know that it ran for eight unique seasons and officially came to a close in 2003. I didn't see it for its first run, but instead I found it on VHS and I enjoyed it immensely. Its gentle format, its focus on teaching wilderness and outdoor activity skills, and above all, getting people off the couch. Nan Mendes was part of that for the first three seasons, arguably the most popular seasons of the show's run. Now, I met Nan way back in 2017 when I set up a Trailside Facebook page, and she reached out, and since I wanted to know more, and it's still somewhat related, I jumped at the chance to speak to her. So, now to my conversation with Nan Mendes. It must seem a little bit like the ghosts of time past because you came to my uh, Trailside page, oh, probably about uh, maybe a year ago, uh, just to check in and and see if there was anything out there about your old show, and you contacted me, and and here we are finally having a discussion about Trailside. And I know there's plenty of people out there that are interested to hear it. Uh, it was over a decade ago. I, I mean, it must it must feel like you know those times of ghosts gone past. How does it feel to you now? Absolutely. I mean, like you said, I I go online every once in a while and just sort of check in and Google Trailside to see because, um, you know, just to see what's out there. And it was it was really cool to run into your page and see that people all of these years were still talking about that show. It's funny, though, I started that back. Um, full disclosure, I, I actually came to Trailside. Uh, I went to West Palm Beach. And I was looking for trail videos on eBay and I got a big box of trail side videos because I'm big interested into the PCT, big interest in the Appalachian Trail. Sure. And I slowly started to collect and watch more and more of them. And funnily enough, I was in West Palm Beaches where the production of the the second, you know, from season three on began. Correct. So I started a Facebook group and there were similar interested people, but they were all wanting DVDs. And I'm just, I'm glad that you, you stumbled across it because you can maybe fill in some of the information that people are really interested about. So I did a little bit of Googling of your name and you're, I'm going to get you to pronounce your, your, your name during production so that I don't butcher it. Sure. My, uh, I'm Nan Mandez. I used to be known as Nan Babiak when I was married, but now it's just Nan. Just Nan. <laughs> like Madonna. Um Correct. And it's funny because when I did a Google, obviously I came across, I saw you in the production credits that were in the Backpacker Magazine articles and you were the production manager. So again, forgive my naivete, what does a production manager actually do and and how did you get hooked up with the Trailside Geek? Sure. So a production manager basically deals with logistics. So we are talking budget, 
scheduling, hiring, whether it's a small production or big production, specifically for trail side in I'll give you a little bit of background i've been in production for all of my life it's all i've ever wanted to do for a long time i thought i wanted to be an editor i was doing a lot of that and um decided i really wanted to be more outdoors as opposed to inside in a dark room editing which is what we used to do back in the day before internet and uh streaming um one of my clients was kind enough to um have trust in me. And he talked to me about this new series that he was putting together. You know, they didn't have a lot of money, so it's not like he could go out and hire somebody who maybe had a lot more experience than me, but he knew me. Um, he knew my attention to detail and all that. And he asked if I wanted to be a part of what uh, ended up being the, the pilot for Trailside. You seem to me, I've seen your photographs. I don't want to say your age because I, I know that's a faux pas. But no, it's not. That's fine. But go ahead. You seemed really young on the, on the pictures that you sent me. You must have just been straight out of college. Um, almost, almost. In '93, so '96, I was 30. So I was 27, and it was a big leap of faith for somebody to hand over. I mean, I didn't realize how lucky I was till much later. But yeah, I was handed what ended up being, you know, a full television series um you know myself and matt cohen who was a supervising producer were in charge of just pretty much coming up with like we started it from scratch like you know how many episodes we were going to have who was going to fund it how we were going to break it up we ended up how many different teams we were going to have together and we sort of just uh, overarch and and worked and supervised all of these different teams um because as you know we know we Trailside travel all over the place. So we couldn't just have one crew. Basically, we had two or three crews working um, so that we wouldn't burn anybody out. Okay. So full disclosure, I, I've asked these questions in the past. They were in a Google Doc. So some of them I've already read. But one of the things you said was that you had been in a couple of documentaries on the Discovery Channel. What was that? Uh, I did. A, it's a series called Rediscovering America. And that was also another client who didn't have a lot of money, so decided to give me a chance. Um, I went out on the road for 55 days and shot two documentaries, one on the history of the American Railroad, and the other one was the uh, working cowboy, like a modern American cowboy. And again, at the time, you know, not being very young and not knowing how crazy it was to accept something like that. We were on the road for 55 days. We hardly had any time off. We had no internet. We had no cell phones. So, you know, it was it was kind of like re or inventing the wheel as far as how to, you know, move a crew that size and, and have to deal with you know, any logistics that comes up on a docu-series, something that's not, you know, scripted or anything like that, or local, like in one spot. And that, you know, allowed me to learn how to basically just think on my feet. So I think you said that you, because I mean, Trailside was a big outdoor series. Did you have any interest in the outdoors or was it simply being <laughs> at the right place at the right time? Yeah, right place at the right time. I mean, I was not averse to it, but it's not something that, uh, you know, I, I really was brought on because of my 
you know, knowledge of the video and the post, because we knew that, you know, we had the backing of Backpacker Magazine, and we had people that we knew were knowledgeable in the outdoor world. So Matt Cohen was smart enough to then make sure that the team that handled, you know, the production side of it really knew, he knew that that's where we needed, you know, to make sure that we had expertise so that we could edit all of these shows and edit them on time and deliver them where they needed to go. You've told me a little bit about how the show developed. How did the show develop? There's a quote that I really like from John Veeman. It was in, in Backpacker Magazine. It was uh, just before the season two launch. Um, and he said that people would catch him in airports and be excited about Trailside because it contrasted the good old boy hunting and fishing shows that dominated Saturday mornings. Was that what Trailside set out to do? And how did the show actually develop? You know, I came in pretty much at the beginning, but there were definitely talks beforehand, you know, about it. Uh, you know, where Backpacker was involved with new media and Stephen Samuels, who was the originator, originating producer for the series. So I'm not really sure what the talks were beforehand about it, but, you know, I was there for the, for the discussion of the first episode and really, you know, sitting down and a... You know, this was before we were funded. So the idea was to try to come up with a pilot that was interested enough that it would absolutely show what it was that Backpacker and John Veeman wanted to convey and something that, you know, budget wise wouldn't cost a lot. And that's why we came up with the uh, first episode or pilot was actually Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, which was a very nice, very simple hiking show. But absolutely from day one, Backpacker and John Veeman were adamant about creating a series that was for the everyday backpacker, you know, not the hunter, not the extreme skier or, you know, backcountry hiking sort of person. He really wanted to get the point across that anybody can do this. And it's funny because he comes across as the everybody in some of it because you can see that obviously, even though John Veeman has experience. There are times when he's a little bit, I wouldn't say out of his element, but the, you can tell the person that he's with. I mean, particularly when you saw him do some of the roles in kayaks and things like that. And you look yeah. at it and you think, well, yeah, you know what you're doing, but he represented that everyman. Yeah, absolutely. And he was humble about it, too. He had no problem getting in front of the camera and sort of seeming, you know, a, a little out of his element, like you said. He, but, but what it showed, I think, and what came across was that if you're willing to learn, you too can do it. Because he, he wasn't, like you said, he wasn't an extreme sportsman, though, as you said, he has been an avid outdoorsman for all of his life some of these things were just not part of his wheelhouse. Yeah, it's interesting because you, the show covered the gamut. I mean, it, it there wasn't just hiking. Obviously, hiking was my primary interest when I came to the show, but it covered so many different forms of travel or so many different forms of adventure travel. Um, I've only seen about 22 episodes of the first 40 in the first three seasons because they're not really that easy to get a hold of, but they seem to get about. I mean, particularly in season two, the, the show went to New Zealand in the Milford track and yeah. it went all over. How did you manage that on a PBS budget? I mean, and, and how did you come up with the locations? Because the Milford track just seemed to be completely out of the blue. It was out of the blue, but it was one of those things. I think, you know, once we 
you know, there, there was a step process. Obviously, once we did the pilot and we shopped it around, PBS was kind enough to pick us up. Um, I think they they acknowledged that this was something that would have an audience. Um, after, and at that same time, we also got two very big sponsors through PBS. Once we got locked in with PBS, we had LL Bean backing us. We had Chevy Truck backing us. Later on, we had high-tech boots. Um, so I think once season one was so successful, we decided you know, and the idea, we literally would sit locked in a room with a large board and put out everything that we wanted to do. We were like kids in a candy store and Milford Track came up, but we, we definitely decided we wanted to do one to two international episodes. Um, not too many, because again, we still wanted, you know, our main audience was, you know, American citizens um, who are watching this. So we wanted them to be able to go to these places if they wanted to, whether it's a flight or a drive to whatever location, because, you know, we weren't all over the United States. But absolutely, it was just sitting around going, what else is out there that we really want to do? And Milford Track was one of them, you know, the what is it called? The most beautiful walk in the world? Why not? Can you remember how that came about? I mean, the Milford Track, I didn't even know. I mean, even though I grew up in Australia, I'd, I'd never heard of the Milford Track before then. So uh, if I had to guess, it was probably an article that was done within Backpacker magazine. I'm just going to say Backpacker would have driven, I would assume, some of the direction of the content, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, John Beeman was absolutely part of all of these discussions. And then we had their writers come in also and sit with us for a few days so that we could throw out as many possible ideas and then just try to narrow it down. And we would table some of like, okay, this, you know, we'll do season three if we still have a season three. The Milford track was one of those episodes that I watched. And I mean, it's not a short track and it's, it, it did leave you wanting more. Uh, it, It was one of, one of the big criticisms that I have heard from people is when they watch Trailside is they're watching Trailside to live vicariously, but instead of living vicariously, they just feel that they've they've watched a promotion for somewhere that they need to go to fill in the gaps. And Milford Track was definitely like that for me. How did it feel when you're on location? How long did it actually take to film something like that? So most episodes in general took seven days. So we 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 traveled for you know one to two days, and then we had the budget only for five days of shooting and having a crew. So once we went international, obviously those travel days became, you know, two, sometimes three on each end. Um, And we did bring our crew from the U.S. Uh, Sometimes we hired local PAs and sort of things. So, you know, it was a budgetary thing. But I think content wise, we wanted to be and, and, and this was a conscious decision that we wanted to not be a travelogue. We wanted to be a show that showed its audience all of these different places that you can go to hike. And Milford Track is interesting because it's not necessarily a difficult or technically difficult track to do. I mean, you know, if you follow it, pretty much everything you saw in the, you know, in the show, you didn't miss anything, in other words. Um, But we really were very careful to stick to, it is is ultimately a how-to show not a travelogue. And and we wrestled with that for, you know, every single time we tried to get a story in because there are so many angles. I mean, I think the closest we got to sort of stepping away from it 
if you'll notice, was that within every episode, after a certain point, we would sort of have like a little aside where we would interview a local person or we go more specifically into, let's say, like how a kayak is made or that sort of stuff. But really, we were always being ourselves, like we reined ourselves in to keep it as a outdoor how-to show. We want to show you how to do this. The aside, so to speak, for the Milford track was he hopped in a helicopter and went yeah. through, uh, which was amazing. Because yeah. at that time I was working in the Everglades and I was actually doing a lot of helicopter flights myself. So I remember seeing that and thinking, just the perspective, you know, uh, in the mountains, places that you couldn't see or get to. And it, it took you away from the track, but it explained some of the scenery and some of the, you know, the greater area that was around you. But right. I that was our compromise, you know. And, and again, it was more like, here's a little taste. Now go out and do it. I mean, you didn't just cover, you know, more the adventure um I shouldn't say the destination type episodes like Milford track or, you know, something like that. It was always an angle to it. Like for example, you would be caving somewhere. So it, it focused on the fundamentals of caving or you would be winter camping, or even you went specifically into things like wilderness 911 as well. Yeah, so you, absolutely. And that was obviously incorporated. That was a conscious decision to make that you, to show that you not just where, but how. Right, exactly. And and those asides were something that we'd literally have a column three set up, you know, so he's like, here's your destinations, here's your activities, and then here's these asides that people really need to learn, whatever they are. We want to feature, you know, how to, you know, take water from a stream and make sure that it's potable. Like you said, wilderness 911, um, how to repair something, you know, looking at food stuff that, you know, whether it's going to be poisonous or not. Um, and then we would just try to match them up, you know, for the series. I mean, I remember in Wilderness 911, uh, there was a discussion about a, a compound fracture and, mm. and how to go about dealing with, I mean, which, yeah, God forbid you would ever come across a compound fracture in the middle of but a trail. But you might. But, but yeah, you might. Exactly. And and they were as diverse as also photography, discussing how to photograph in the outdoors. And, right. and that's what I liked about the show. It I, I did sometimes want some more content from the you know the purely adventurous side of me, but you're right. It was it was a gentle show. Now, right. when you did do the episodes, obviously you tried to keep them fairly well scripted and, and within a certain time frame, and you only had a limited amount of time that you could actually shoot. But was there a lot of footage that ended up on the on the cutting room floor? No, not much. I mean, for for five days of shooting, we'd be lucky if we got those six minutes a day of usable footage. Um, so really, it was, you know, lean and mean and just get it done. I mean, the, the I don't think we've talked about this, but everything you saw in the episode, the mm -hmm. crew also did. So if we're talking in the show about hiking, you know, six miles in, um, to a location and setting up camp and all that, the crew did that also. There was no staying in a hotel and coming in every day, um, you know, to shoot in various locations to make it look like we were hiking or camping. So, I mean, we made slight concessions for the crew. We did have an outfitter come in so they could feed us and set up our tents um, so that, you know, once we were done shooting our 10 to 12 hour days, we didn't have to come home and, you know, try to make ourselves a meal. Um, but, but everything you see, the crew did also. Wow. And how big was the crew again? 
not very. I mean, we had a cameraman, we had an assistant camera who sometimes uh, also photographed. We had a location manager, John Veeman, a guest, and uh, usually a PA or two. Now, I asked you, what was your favorite episode? I'm a big fan of the 18 <laughs> yeah. through Hybex. So I love it. It's uh, around the same time I was using the camera to go out on the trail myself, which was just a you know, little DV hand cam, and it was around 2000. But you handed cameras to these kids and told them, you hey, did. film, whatever. Now, that was my favorite episode, so I do want to uh, talk about that. Uh, and that is my favorite uh, out of all. And I have you know wonderful memories because I did you – know, I was a production manager for those three seasons, but I did get to go out on quite a few of them myself. Um, but my favorite was the AT and because it's so different from all the other ones. Absolutely. But they were stars. The, yes. the guys who did that, uh, you know, guys and girls who did those uh, recordings. Um, it was one of the first times you could actually see people on the trail talking about their trail experiences in real time, because even though we see, you know, oh, absolutely tons of it now on YouTube mm -hmm. uh, back in the day, it was a rarity. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that that episode, which we ended up making two, that was the only one that became a two parter because there was so much amazing material. Um, we it, it took all season to shoot that, obviously, because the through hikers, you know, take about six months to hike. Um, and it was old school. Again, no internet, no cell phone. So it was contacting the local, you know, AT locations to try to find people who'd be willing to do this, who were thinking about doing it and hoping that they would actually, you know, start the trail, mailing them each cameras, hoping that they would, you know, record themselves. And like you said, this was before MTV, before all that sort of stuff in YouTube, where, you know, these testimonials, you see them all the time now, but back then, you know, you didn't have that. And, and then it was trying to catch up with them because we do a couple of times and, and we plan this, you know, figured out where they were going to be and hoped that we could get our crew and John Veeman and everybody available to go out and meet with them. Um, yeah. And it, I thought it turned out to be, it, it was, it's such a good episode. And I think it tells you so much about it. The AT, which is outdoors and it's all that, but it is kind of extreme. I mean, you are, you know, leaving civilization for anywhere from six to eight months. Um, you know, and now you do it and you go out with a cell phone and, you know, you can certainly record and talk to people, but back then you kind of just, you know, went and, and hope that, you know, your buddy that stayed back home actually shipped you things to every single location that you needed to and relied on your AT buddies, you know, if anything went wrong or you needed any kind of assistance. Now, when I did my little hike on, it was on the Bibberman track, actually in Western Australia, I took a a Sony TVR6, which was a, a DV camera. It, I mean, it was a nightmare in itself because of all the the, the batteries and everything else. What what did you ship these if ship I these kids out with? Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, they were you know high eight cameras. If you remember those tiny little cassettes, you know we we just sent the cameras. We sent extra batteries and we sent pre-addressed pre. You know, stamped envelopes with our return address on it. Now, did you use everybody that you sent a camera to? We used everybody, correct? Because there was one, I think uh, the fellow actually had uh, um, um, oh, 
I don't want to say shin splints, but he certainly had a stress injury and he had to come off the trial. And I was curious to know if there was anybody that just didn't make it, but obviously they all made it. They all made it. You must have vetted them ahead of time because they, they were very comfortable on the cam- under camera. And it's like you say, today, people aren't used to sitting in front of a camera and telling their experiences. I, I think we got very lucky because I think, uh, yeah, we pre-interviewed them beforehand. Um, but, you know, we didn't have that many people to choose from. Um, and the ones that we did choose did an amazing job for us. And, and obviously you decided to make that. I mean, the, the AT is a, a five to six month hike. So I'd imagine that you needed to make that a two-parter. Yeah. I, I think there were a couple of two-parters. I don't know if they may be beyond your uh, tenure there. It might have been beyond mine. As I, uh, you know, I, I was only on for the first three seasons. So what was the shoot like? I mean, what was your day to day? Was it stressful? Was it fun? Was it was it a laugh a minute or was it, you know, at everybody's throats until the day was done? What was it like? It was a little bit of everything. I mean, it was chaotic, but a lot of fun. Um, it was, you know, flying by the cedar pants. It was reinventing things, reinventing things. Um you know, even from simple things. My day when I I did go on the road, uh, like I said, on probably, I don't know, I think like six or seven of the episodes, uh, which was nice to get out of the office. But, you know, when I was in the office, I was sitting there, you know, basically fielding phone calls and just trying to stay ahead of the game. You know, um, you talked a little bit about, you know, PBS budget. It was quite small for you know, what we needed to do for each and every episode. So there was a lot of phone call making to, you know, local uh, tourism boards, um, local film offices, local um, AT uh, offices, see if people could volunteer to help bring equipment in to see if we could get, you know, hotels uh, given to us for the crew for the first night um, or even flights given to us. Um, or some of them. So there was a lot of just, just prepping, you know, and more often than not, we had one crew out at all times, you know, with John Veeman out. So it was trying to locate them, making sure that they got what they needed or whatever, if we had to be rained out or if we couldn't do something, you know, John Veeman got sick a couple of times where we had to really just halt production altogether and what that was going to do. You know, or if we had a, a guest that all of a sudden wasn't available and we were supposed to shoot him, let's say, next week, and now we have to change that. Like, let's see if we if another show is available to be shot that week and, and move things around. Because a lot of those people that you had there's the, um, as the sidekick of the episode to John Veeman, uh, they're not natural actors. A lot of them would have been just on location that were familiar with the area or had some form of expertise, but you would have had to... Um, they would have had to learn a script and they would have had to run through the script. And uh... so the, John Beeman's intros and outros were absolutely scripted. Sure. He did like to sit there and just, you know, write something concise to make sure he got everything out. Um, he wasn't, there were no cue cards or anything. He just would write stuff down and sort of memorize it the way he wanted it to do. Um, as far as the guests were concerned, that portion was not scripted. What, when we had a script per se, it would be questions and then they would sort of rehearse they'd be like okay we're we want to do a five minute segment on i don't know changing a tire or you know 
whatever it is that we wanted to do. And it was rehearsed. So the script itself was more bullet points with information that we wanted to get across so that people wouldn't forget. Um, but it wasn't like, here, read this cue card and memorize this because this is what we want to get across. So not dissimilar to my podcast, really. Correct. So you said you were only on six six shoots away. Is that is that what you About, had? yeah. Okay. And what were they? Just for kicks and giggles. Uh, let's see. I did um, uh, rainforest hiking in Puerto Rico, which was amazing. Though it was funny because it was like, oh, yeah, right. Rainforest hiking means it's going to rain every single day. Um, I did sea kayaking in Baja. Uh-huh. I did uh, fly fishing in Wyoming. Um, I did the Tennessee episode, our pilot episode. Um, trying to remember, it was a while ago. Some of them were great. I mean, I I just started working the Everglades when I actually saw the solo ki- uh, canoeing in the Everglades, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of a, a chicky and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, by the time I'm watching them, I'm watching them in 2008. <laughs> Uh, so by that stage, and, and they were, uh, I, they're, they're quaint. I mean, I don't mean that in a, in a, a derisive way because mm-hmm. they're not flashbang like things are today. Everything has to be fast editing and quick and snappy. And, and that's not what the purpose of the show was. And that's not what they were like. And I think that's why the people that are interested in the show still have that interest. That, right. they, because we don't see that on TV anymore. I, I agree. So what? So what was it like working with? What was it like working with John Veerman? Because I mean, he was, he was the star, and he was the everyman. And I, I don't know if it's uncle or father figure or best friend down the pub, but everybody I think wants to have a drink with John Veerman because he came across as such an amiable man. Was he with John Veerman? What I'll cut it later if it's bad. Yeah, what you see is what you get. John Veerman is not, but you know, he is. He is a man of conviction. He is, you know, again, what you see is what you get. He wanted to make sure that he came across as, you know, the everyday man. And that's who he is. That's who he is. And and again, there were no cutting corners, none. He made that very clear at the beginning as far as you know, we're not, not that you could in most of the locations, you know, but we're not driving to that location. We're not getting dropped off into that location. We are making this show work as real as we can possibly make it. Again, with the crew we had, you know, there's just no way that we could do it within the budget for us to carry our own equipment in and all that stuff. So we did hire, you know, local, uh, um, hiking clubs to help us bring in equipment and we did hire an outfitter but everything else we all did and that was with John Veeman's leadership because that's what he wanted he never ever wanted to have to explain to somebody that what you saw was not what he did just to explain I should say that that John Veeman's connection through Backpacker he was the editor of Backpacker magazine is that correct correct okay so I mean but he wasn't naturally on camera. That wasn't his, wasn't no. his MO. 
No, I mean, he, he's definitely always been sort of a quote unquote public figure in that he is, he's very passionate about who, what he does. So he does, he can speak and, and, and was used to public speaking, but absolutely not. He was, he was not, and he didn't take any coaching and there were no acting. There were none of that. He learned as he went along with the rest of us. I mean, I'm not surprised he got sick, though. When you look at the production schedule, uh, <laughs> I mean, when you look at how far in a field you went and the yeah. things that he had to do, it's like you're saying, if he has to actually do the things to make up a show. Um, yeah, just... and he still had his regular job. He was still the editor of Backpacker magazine. So he had to, you know, when he wasn't on the road, and that's what he was doing every other week, you know, going back home and putting together a magazine. I don't know how he managed it, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky through you uh, to be able to contact him on. Um, he he joined the Trailside group that's on Facebook, how we actually met, um, a little bit before you. Oh. And, and I, um, he well, he must have been having the same pangs of, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the nostalgia that you were having when looking at things about Trailside. And he came across it and I messaged him and through the magic of Facebook, he eventually got back to me. So I am looking forward to speaking to him because- oh. He's agreed to to also speak with you. Well, yes, he has. I just have Wonderful. to reach out to him by by email, and obviously, I think I'll get more into the bones of yes. Well, what was it like on location? Because he <laughs> went to so many locations. But but before I do that show, I'm going to have to go back and watch all the episodes that I have. Right. I have some on VHS. If uh, I can, start, I'll send you a picture of what I have. See if you're missing something. You really oh, that that would be great. I mean, again, I don't have all of them. I only kept the ones that I really really loved. And that's the thing. I think there are a lot of people out there who keep contacting me and saying, where is it on DVD? Where is it on DVD? And I try to, I try to be respectful of copyright, of course, because I don't want to just be sharing things willy nilly, but it sure. is very sad that they can't get access to them. Okay. Yeah. Now, one of the, one of the last questions I was asking you is funny anecdotes. <laughs> uh, hmm. Funny ha ha or funny as in it was miserable right up until the point of three years later when I could laugh about it. When we could laugh about it. Well, I mean, we certainly had, you know, speaking of our John getting sick, we did have a, sh a show in Baja. We were shooting in the Sea of Cortez. We were going... Um, it was right after the holidays. It was in, I think it was in January sometime. Anyway, we got down to Mexico, which is no easy task. You know, we're, we're again, leaving the United States. It's much easier to do that now. I remember that we had, you know, I, I remember going on this trip and literally having cash strapped to my body because I wasn't sure how, whether I was able to going to be, uh, you know, be able to access you know, checking or my credit cards or any of that. Anyway, so we went down to Baja and um, the way we got to the island that we were shooting in, um, we took a, a panga or a skiff. It was like a 25 footer across the Sea of Cortez into this little island. We get there, um, you know, we're starting to shoot. It's like day one or two and it's beautiful. You know, sea lions and whales and all of that. Anyway, so John, uh, gets violently ill the I, I, probably the second day that we were there. He had to be, you know, rescued by Panga or Skiff. Um, you know, we were sitting there just waiting for word to see whether he'd get better. We, we really didn't know because we couldn't reach him. So there was not a lot of news. Anyway, he ended up going 
back to the United States in order to get better. So cut to or fast forward to a month later, we decided to reshoot this. And it was, you know, the exact same people, same outfitter, same everybody. So it was literally just making phone calls and being like, yep, confirmed, yep, confirmed. These are the new dates, everything the same, everything the same. We get to the island and the crew is eating. I was on location, so I was the location manager. I turned to my outfitter and the outfitter's like, so where are your tents? And I was like, what do you mean? Where are my tents? You were supposed to supply the tents. No tents available whatsoever. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a panic. Crew had no idea. They're sitting there all kumbayaing and enjoying and loving life. And I'm freaking out because it's, you know, what, 98 degrees during the day and, you know, I don't know, 50 degrees at night. Um, not a not a good thing. Not a good thing. And um, we had to get in a panga, me and the outfitter, pretty much, you know, in the dark, go out to the middle of the Sea of Cortez so that our giant, you know, two foot cell phone could get some sort of reception to finally reach somebody at their offices. I think it was through like an operator, like Verizon or AT&T operator who then connected us to somebody that the outfitter knew in Mexico, who then, you know, somehow got all these sleeping bags and tents all together and met us in the middle of the Sea of Cortez, handed us all the stuff, and then we brought it back. And I don't think anybody ever knew that that happened. You could certainly ask John if he remembers any of it, but I think, I think nobody knew. I was ready to pass out. And today you would just get on Amazon and yeah, and it would be there before you know it. Right, exactly. Right, or, or send a text, right, or a Marco Polo or a FaceTime or whatever. Yeah, none of that. Yeah, your your greatest stress would be, oh, I've got, have I got enough phone battery? Exactly, exactly. Did I bring enough backup so I can charge my battery over and over? <laughs> you did say that another thing was one of your your favorite interview question. Yeah. Yes. So you know we had. Uh, we had lots of resumes from people who absolutely wanted to work on our show, especially after the first season. And my favorite question, you know, great, you, you know, you have all this experience shooting and, you know, doing all that stuff. But my favorite question was always, can you carry half your body weight for a mile or two? You know, and, and if you couldn't, then you couldn't be part of our crew. <laughs> and don't forget the tents. <laughs> exactly. And don't forget your tent. <laughs> Now, at the end of season three, because uh, I know there was a split, um, different production companies took it over and Trailside continued for an, several more years. I think it continued yes. for almost uh, seven years. I think yes. it got up to nine seasons and, and the, mm -hmm. the format didn't change substantially. It just the host changed. I mean, he, he became less of an everyman like uh, John yeah. Beeman. I think it was John Whitaker who took over, who actually was on one episode with John. He was. It was. I think he was on the Rainier episode. That's right, yeah. And they were doing the self-arresting and so forth. Yep. So, <laughs> so so there was a little bit of a change. And, and I know John went off to do Any Place Wild, and mm -hmm. you yep. left the show as well. I did. I did. After three seasons, I was just burnt out. I mean, I had no social life. It literally was, you know, nine months, ten months of production that were just – grueling and then the other two to three months was you know getting ready for the next season and it was all of it you know it was dealing with you know making sure 
everybody was safe. Here's what I want to say, and I'm really proud of this. You know, we did all of these things, and again, no cell phones, none of that. Um, it was pretty primitive. Nobody ever got hurt. We got everything that we wanted to get, um, but it took a lot to get to be that safe, to be, you know, that such a well-oiled machine. And after a while, it was just like, oh my God, I need. I need a break. These days, my camping is literally car camping or what I like to call glamping. <laughs> I mean, even if somebody did get hurt, you had all that 911 experience. You, we did, you, we you, did but we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make sure that everybody had a good time. Yeah, know? but it, it would have made a hell of an episode. I, I mean, you would have had to change your production schedule to cope for it, but, you know. I yes, mean, even- thank God, no. I mean, literally, they were, you know, we had to research. And again, by phone, we had to research this. Like the low, the, the nearest three hospitals. And that was on the contact sheet with phone numbers. We had to research a, 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 an exit strategy for one individual who, to go out if, God forbid, something happened where we needed to send somebody down to contact, you know, the local either park ranger or office or whatever and, and, and have them on standby knowing that, you know, if we got hurt, somebody needed to be rescued pretty quickly. And again, thank God we never had to enact that. But that was part of the research, too, on top of everything else that you see on camera. We take everything for granted nowadays. I'm, I mean, I'm a bit younger than you. I'm 48, but I still... I think about um, I think about how things were and how spoiled we are now. Every, for example, you know, if you'd send the bunch of kids on the track today, you would be getting you know 4K video and you know in real time, and you could edit it as you go. And sure. but then again, it takes away some of the magic, and I think it takes away some of what Trailside was set out to do anyway about the experience. You know, we're, we're no longer about. Um, the experience is secondary to the production. Yeah. And, and which seems to be completely against what Trailside was about. Exactly. And and I'm glad for that at the time. I mean, also for me, you know, and I have, you know, I've retired from outdoor video production, but I'm still in video production. And I have to say that since that, like, I can do anything. Like, anybody asked me to do anything, I'm like, what? Easy. Like, there, there's nothing that compares to the difficulty of what we set out to do with Trailside and we successfully did with Trailside, but it prepared me for, you know, nowadays. I mean, it's so easy now for me to do anything because I have all of these, you know, wonderful technological advances. You know, there's nothing I can't do. <laughs> I, I think about when my dad used to talk about, you know, he'd walk uphill both ways just to get home. and. <laughs> I, I feel that I say the same thing nowadays. No one ever really appreciates how difficult things could be, certainly pre-internet. Right, right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, they can't. I mean, I have I have kids. I have a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old. And they they just can't even fathom it. They can't, you know, they, they just have no idea. None. So what do you think the legacy of the show is? Because, I mean, there is a little bit of interest, but there's not a lot. I mean, do you, do you think it was successful in its purpose? Did it, did it really have the connection and what's its legacy? I think what we set out to do, we were successful in doing. I think also that we supplied an audience uh, information that wasn't readily available out there. And we presented it in such a way that uh, allowed people to not just dream, but actually do it. Um, because it was, 
you know, you, you, we couldn't have made it any easier for you. It's like, this is what you have to do in order to get out there and do it. You don't need all this fancy equipment. You don't need this. You don't need that. Just go out and do it. And I, I'd like to think that that's what we provided to our audience, that there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people out there who maybe, you know, either enjoyed it, you know, just from their own um, couch, but but hopefully many of them just went out there and and enjoyed you know what nature has to offer. Did you get a lot of good feedback during the production of the show? I did, I did. We got wonderful letters from people. Like you said, if if you you know Trailside was if if you had fans, they were avid fans. Um, they were hungry fans that were so excited. Um, you know, to see it, you know, you, you had your, even people, you know, we had an audience definitely already, you know, just from backpacker magazine readers, but even those people who may not have quote unquote watched TV, you know, because TV was, you know, didn't have anything that interests them. They were watching and they were excited about the show. Cause the number of the people that I've spoken to, it was, it became a something that they shared with their parents or they shared yeah. with their children. And they yeah. talked about it being a real event. You know, we, we've just spoken about how easy things are in terms of production because of how good technology is today. And we forget the fact that around this time, granted we had VHS tapes, but people would actually make it an event to sit down and watch the show. And yeah. there was one guy who contacted me and said, I really want the Milford track. And I, I did share it with him. Don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> But it was because he said that he had shared that episode and enjoyed that episode much so much with his father. Nice. Really yeah. nice. How do you think the show would be produced today? Oh. Could it be produced today and, and certainly keep the same brief? I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you – well, so if you don't want to make money, you stay in PBS. You can certainly keep <laughs> that legacy. Um, you know, I think you'd have to find a certain group of people again. I think the audience is there. I think I think if you take it outside of a PBS situation, um, I think people want that crazy excitement and you might want a younger host. You might want more extreme things. Um, I'd like to think that we could go back out there and produce, you know, another gentler show. But I, I don't know. I don't know if the audience... I don't know if the audience would be there for it, sadly. I don't know if sometimes we um, we give audiences what they we think they want rather than... True. Than, you know, I, I, I think the audience is there and it shows that people are still interested in the, in the VHS tips, particularly the ones from the later seasons, are quite expensive. Well, listen, if you've got some listeners out there with some extra funding and they'd like to sponsor, you know, a <laughs> re-envisioning of Trailside, have them call us. I look. I've just settled for the DVDs. I actually contacted um, Steve. Uh, I want to say I'm going to butcher his name, Vicinio, uh, who who had the show afterwards. Yeah. And um, I, I'm I've lined him up for an interview as well. Oh, good. Does he have the masters? That's what I was going to ask. That's the question that everybody wants to know. Have you gotten in touch with Matt Cohen? No, I haven't. But that's something that we probably need to talk about when we finish the show. Yeah, yeah, because he was he was the supervisor and producer alongside myself. Um, so he may know. And and I haven't heard from Stephen Samuels in a while, so I'm not really sure what he's up to. But one of those two may know where the first three seasons 
you know, and, and again, I don't know what the contractuals were once it was moved over from new media into the new company and all that. I don't know what happened to the, the first three seasons as far as rights are concerned and all that, but they might not. Well, we're lucky because the first three seasons were sold um, extensively. Yes. Uh, you know, you can find pretty much everything from the first three seasons. It's the later ones you can't. And I would, you know, obviously, I would like to see them on something like Vimeo or something. Even if you had to pay um, to watch <laughs> them, you know, it would be worth it just to be able to time travel back. And I think it would also be interesting for people who want to see what production was like because we haven't got a little bit too fast paced now. I mean, I'm not sure we can completely go back, but there, there has to be a balance. Yeah, I agree. Now, do you do you wish you had access? to what they have today back then for production, like a, a drone or anything? I mean, how easy would it have been? Well, I don't, I don't think even having access to drones, you know, especially within the United States, I don't know if the rules, I don't remember if the rules changed for international, but, you know, you weren't around, allowed any motorized anything within uh, United States uh, park, federal park or conservancy area, any of that. So even if there were drones, we just couldn't use them. You know, if we needed to bring something in, you had to hike it in. You had to put it on horse pack. Um, you know, that, that was the closest we've got to not bringing it up ourselves. Um, as far as the, the other stuff, I think having that technology would have made the show a different pace. I like the fact that we just pretty much disappeared and hoped for the best, you know, on, on Monday once we started hiking up and, you know, resurfaced on Friday or Saturday, you know, with our material. Because you probably would have ended up shooting it five different ways till Sunday because you could collect, you know. Exactly. Uh, you know, 10 terabytes worth of video mm -hmm. and, and so on. Yeah, no, this was very specific. We had, you know, a certain number of tapes because that's all we could carry up there, a certain number of batteries, um, you know, a certain number of power. We can certainly watch a little bit of dailies at night sometimes, but only if we hadn't used up all of our batteries during the day. Everything was accounted for. You would have had to permit the hell out of everything, everywhere you filmed, right? Yeah, <laughs> we did. Even internationally or just, just in the U.S.? or Some internationally. I mean, you know, we certainly needed carnets. Again, we were self-sustained, so we didn't uh, hire local crews. We brought our own. We were a tight little group. We knew how to get ourselves in and out of situations and not get hurt, you know, safely and, and get what we needed. So we kept our crew pretty tightly. But, yeah, we had to get, you know, permission to film wherever we went. Do you still have good friends from your time at Trailside? I do. I do. I have quite a number of friends. Um, Jeff Wayman, um, who was one of our main cameramen, if you wanted to talk to him, he's around. He lives in Hawaii now. Um, Daryl Zucra was also a, a, a crew member. He's up in Maine. And we talk regularly and hang out. And Cressida Bainton was uh, one of our location managers. And I'm in touch with her. So quite a number of Heidi Untner, Heidi Untner and Daryl, by the way, Zucra were, I love the story because basically they were fans and they wrote in about what a wonderful show it was. And would we give them a chance to, they were like, you know, we'll do anything to work on Trailside. And I brought them in as interns way back in the day. We call them my babies. And they are, you know, they, they went on to become full fledged producers 
um, from our series because we were small enough that, yeah, they had to do the intern grunt work, but we also utilized their brains and they went on to help associate produce and produce and go on location. This was literally just from fan letters, two fan letters that came in. Lucky them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're still friends. Excellent. And and just so you know, I mean, I didn't want to give like a big numbers and stuff like that, but our budgets were about 90,000 per episode, which is nothing. And that meant we had to move the whole crew. Because again, that was one thing we decided at the beginning that in order to be able to do this safely, um, we had to have a cohesive crew that traveled together. You know, we none of us were comfortable doing this sort of stuff with picking up locals that we didn't know. People who might not know how to hike or might freak out in the middle of the woods or all this sort of stuff. So, but that was, that came at a high price. You know, you're talking about flights for, you know, seven different, eight different crew members, plus hotels at the beginning and at the end. That alone eats up so much of your money. You know, so much of your money. And that included everything, by the way. That included post. Wow. Who did the post? Who I mean We did it internally. We we set up we had basically an office in um Connecticut in Westport, Connecticut. We had a building. Um, so production was up it was like, you know, downtown Abbey. We had <laughs> upstairs, we had our uh three teams of, you know, associate producer and researcher. Um, for for all of the episodes and then downstairs we had a couple of edit suites who did the uh, intro music because it's iconic you can't hear that music without knowing exactly what you're listening to i know you know we hired i I know matt basically i think it was somebody that matt knew um that he just asked him to write it's the same thing with the with the opening you know graphic credits we we hired somebody that matt knew Okay. I mean, obviously, the opening graphic credits are long before Flash and, and any of those things. But it, and I'm glad that they never changed them. I'm glad that they kept them consistent. Me too. Right, right. Yeah, but the music was iconic. And it was, you know, it was this guy that just came up with it, you know. There's so much about that show that I like. Even when you, when you get the VHS copies, you can see some of the outtakes. Yes, you can. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there was... I'm sure that was a lot of fun to do, but like you're saying, it was a labor, a labor of of love as opposed to a financial financial. And no wonder you, no wonder you left after three years. I know, right? But I, you know, it was three really amazing years. And again, I, I can talk it. You know, it's like, yeah, I've, I've I've caved. Oh, absolutely, I've gone. You know, see kayaking about. Oh yeah, dog sledding. Sure, I've done it. Rainforest hiking. Absolutely. You know, people are always like, what? When did you do all this stuff, you know? And even when I wasn't doing them, you know, I was an integral part of researching and coming up with how to do it. So I, I got to learn all of the stuff, which is amazing. Because there's a lot to it. I mean, when I was first, years ago, this was while, I, when I hiked the Bidman track or part of the Bidman track back in 2000, and I took my camera, the idea was that I would, because I hadn't seen any trail videos. This is before the big boom and certainly right. before YouTube. And I took about, I think I took about three hours of film to see if, you know, what I could put together of the story of that, you know, section hike. It was only, I think, uh, four days. Right. And I thought to myself, you know, this is something that I think people would be really interested in. And then years later, I started to see people produce them. And and now they're a bit passe because people can go out with a cell phone and do almost anything. Um, But I always thought at the time that that was, that sort of travel log was something that I really wanted to do. So 
I started to get interested in obviously the copyright side of things. What could you use? How could you get music? What angles did you use? What did you use to get audio? And um, there's a lot to it. Yeah. There is a lot to it. There's there's mm-hmm. far more than somebody like me. But then again, I've, I've also seen people go out with, the, there was a group called Cirque Productions that did a through mm-hmm. hike of the AT and all they took was a, um, they took a DV8 camera, one of the, you know, the same ones that they did the Blair Witch Project on, which would sure. have been a three, yeah. it would have been a three CCD camera back then. Mm-hmm. And they filmed it and it was, it was amazing. It was, it was amazing what they could come up with because it was, um, it was real. And right. nowadays, unfortunately, I don't think things are real because people just, they act for the camera. They want exactly. to do silly things. They, it's, it's the, right. they want to be memorable, right? They want to get that sound bite done, that sort of stuff. I, I agree. Well, look, yeah. I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, so I'm going to close it out. But, but what are you up to now? Uh, so I uh, own my own video production company. I mostly do corporate videos, travel all over the place, take summers off, and I live in a beautiful uh, lake community where I get to look at the mountains and kayak and bike and hike, but for fun. And there are any shows that you recommend? Is there anything out there that you do you're watching particularly that nowadays? Well, even from the the outdoor perspective, do you, do you ever do you keep in touch with such things, or is it just that time in your life that's gone? Yeah, it was that time in my life. It was a time in my life, and it was amazing. And you know, the more time that passes, the more amazing it seems. Especially when I talk to people about it, because I did get to experience all of those different things that I don't think I know that I would have not done. I just wouldn't have done it. Did you know that it was as special at the time? Yeah, we did. We did. I mean, you know, maybe not as a as a television series, you know, but as a a lifestyle, as a, a, as a as a place where we got to do these amazing things with such a tight group of people. We knew it was special from that end. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, I I can't thank you enough for reaching out. Uh, and I know that there is, I have one guy in particular on that Facebook group who keeps on saying, when are you going to do those interviews? When are you going to do those interviews? And I eventually got round to finishing it. So I am very grateful for you joining me today now. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I hope you get to reach uh, all the other people. And if you need help, uh, uh, I'll help you connect with some of the people we've talked about. that's another episode of Skippy Cast done. Thanks to Nan Mendez for talking about her time on Trailside. And yes, my pronunciation of her name changes constantly for some reason. And for that, I apologize profusely. Check out skippycast.org for the show notes and some pictures that Nan has so considerately shared. And as always, if you want to leave a comment for me or Nan, feel free to do it at the website or at the Skippy Cast Facebook page. Now, I have three more episodes already recorded. The other interview that I did in 2018 with my van travel mate, John Claggett, a recently recorded interview with John Veeman, 
uh, the host of the first three seasons of Trailside, and Bob Butler, the ex-host of Trailcast. After that, we're back on topic as I plan to speak with Bobby Abrahamson, who produced the wonderful pictorial book One Summer Across America, about his 2001 road trip across the U.S. by Greyhound Bus. I'm going to follow that up with an interview of the original digital nomad Stephen K. Roberts and his inclined bicycling adventures back in the 1980s and 1990s. And of course, if you feel that there's someone out there that I really need to talk to, message me and I'll see about setting it up. And special thanks to the bands Tom Joad and Kelly Vice for providing music for the show. And of course, thank you to you all for listening to Skippycast. Cast.